Welcome to Studio Break. I'm your host, David Linaway. For our 13th special episode today, we've got Ron Jackson, an interview I did with him a number of weeks ago, talking all about his work. He's been making work quite a long time, and if you know Ron Jackson, he tends to be able to elaborate with lots of great stories, so hope you all enjoy them, and it's all coming up. So I'm here with Ron Jackson. How are you doing today? Good. Um, and so we're, we're doing a very special edition. This is going to be recorded about a month of month ahead of time from Christmas. So that's when you'll be out of the bag as it were. So, Hmm. um, so my first, my first kind of little introduction is just, if you could just kind of give us a little bit of your, I guess, background in terms of growing up where you grew up and Mm -hmm. I guess some maybe experiences that you might want to go into on that. (laughs) Okay. Uh, I grew up on, on the East Coast in Virginia, uh, pretty close to Washington, D.C. Uh, I think it's probably about 60 miles south of Washington, D.C., in a, a little small town, little resort town, on the Potomac River. And um, I, I think I had a pretty usual you know, childhood, nothing extraordinary. Um, I did, one thing that maybe was different, I did live in a situation, we were outside of a town, and so when I was uh, grade school age and and younger, uh, I spent a lot of time alone. I really didn't uh, have playmates to, to spend time with. And so the only time I really socially interacted was at school. And high school was a little different because we, we had cars, so yeah, there was much more interaction going on. But it was a, a kind of a combination of a country, very rural, and a, a town. Actually, a number of the students uh, uh, had, had lived in, in Washington or Alexandria. And so there was a certain certain urban sophistication about it, and the town was a resort town, uh, so it had uh, an influx of people mm-hmm. coming in in the summer that were usually urban type people. Uh, the high school was a consolidated school, so there was a mixture there of the rural students and the, the more town like students, and that was kind of kind of interesting. <laughs> but uh, I, I guess you're thinking about this in relation to, to my deciding to go into art, <clears throat> how that might have led to that. Well, I, I was one of those guys that uh, could draw. And, and In fact, in the entire high school, we only had 300 and some people. And uh, so I was known as a person, if you wanted something drawn, go to Ron. So uh, I did posters, you know, and things of that sort, and usually tried to do offbeat kind of things. 
Um, but I knew nothing about art at all, just completely naive. And I remember my mother belonging to a book of the month club, and you got a some sort of a prize or reward for being in it once a year, and they'd be a special publication. And one year it was a kind of a large portfolio-sized book of American art, and it was art out of the um, 30s and the, the 40s, and it had, I think, nothing in it that was entirely abstract, but, but it had Thomas Hart Benton, people that were abstract to that extent. And I remember looking through that book and wondering, God, why would they do that? You know, what what in the world? Why would he make that stuff all twisted up? It doesn't look like that. Right. And uh, just being kind of confused about it. But but sort of curiously in, interested, too. And uh, so anyway, uh, high school for me was uh, not a great academic experience. I don't remember ever bringing any books home. Uh, during the entire entire four years, except once, I got interested in math class, and I did I did actually study for that course and so forth. But uh, I really wasn't planning on going to college. Hardly anybody went to college from the town. This is back in uh, well, when my senior year was uh, fifty eight, nineteen fifty eight. So. Um, I was, uh, the, the town actually had uh, gambling piers in it, and that's what made it into a resort town. It was kind of a bathing beach there, and the setup was you couldn't gamble in Virginia, uh, but the state line between Virginia and Maryland is a low tide mark for the Potomac River. So someone figured out all you had to do was build a pier out and then put the gambling casino out in the water on the piers. And in effect, you could have gambling in the town. And they always left like a half inch gap that you had to step over to get into <laughs> Maryland. Uh, but it really did bring a lot of people into the town. And in fact, the uh, town was featured in the Saturday Evening Post at one time. Uh, they had uh, champagne flights where they flew people into the town and so forth. Uh, so one night I had a friend who was, uh, he was a year older than I was and he had gone to college. And, uh, so we, we, uh, were riding around the town that night. That was what you did. You rode around and we had gotten a six pack. And so we were drinking beer and we pulled up in the parking lot of the Monte Carlo and, uh, we were just kind of sitting there putting them back. And uh, he said, well, what are you going to do? You know, you're going to get out of high school. What are you going to do? And I said, I really don't know what I'm going to do. Maybe I'll go to the service. And he said, uh, you draw. And I, I said, yeah, I do that. He said, well, we're guys in my dorm, and all they do is draw. And I said, what? <laughs> and he said, yeah. He said, I don't think they even, even uh, study things. They just draw <laughs> <laughs> so I, you know, that was a revelation to me. I never knew that there were art schools right. in a university or a college setting. 
So I applied to the school, and the school was uh, Richmond Professional Institute, which was actually uh, an extension of William and Mary. The campus for that was in Williamsburg, and the campus for RPI, as it was called, was in Richmond. And uh, it was known for being an art school. It really wasn't known for its academics. And uh, it offered theater and music and visual arts. So I applied to that and got in. And uh, it was a, a fantastic experience for me. Uh, what was really great about it was we had no academics for the first two years. For four semesters, it was only art, mm-hmm. only studio. And probably luckily so for me, because I was in no, no position, I think, at that point in my life to, to have dealt with academics. Um, and the school, what I thought I would be when I applied to the school, was uh, a commercial artist, as they called it in that day. Uh, today it would be, what, graphic design, communications. Um, and... When I got there, it was a very unusual circumstance where the head of the commercial arts school was, uh, well, he he was a Yale person and uh, sort of uh, wore a tweed jacket, just a caricature of that, a tweed jacket, a pipe that constantly went out that he had to fumble (laughs) with to relight and so forth. And uh, he was very much into Zen Buddhism on his own, his personal life. And so, but in an academic kind of way, apparently. But anyhow, he, he read a book the summer before I began school. He read a book on uh, Zen, Zen and the Art of Archery, I think is the name of the book. Anyway, the, the book is about indirectness, uh, to, to reach a goal Instead of going at it directly, which tend to push the goal away, you went at it obliquely, and the goal came to you. So on the strength of that, he fired all his commercial art teachers. There was no tenure in those days. He fired all of them except for two, which were two hardcore old guys that had worked in right. the field. Now. And he hired all fine artists painters, sculptors, and printers, and so forth, to teach the same commercial curriculum. He didn't change the name of the courses or the content description of the course or anything. And he told the the people that he hired that they would be teaching art, fine arts. So the first day I went into class, I went into this just not chaos, but this very strange situation where the person teaching the class, it was a basic design class, had no idea what basic design was, had never even thought about anything like that. They were a painter, and they thought they'd been hired to teach painting. And uh, apparently that was just the sort of situation he wanted. He wanted that kind of upset in the, the program. So it, it was very interesting. In every class I had, except for the lettering class, which was taught by one of these old-time guys, uh, was taught by a, a fine arts person, either a painter or a sculptor. And uh, I think that was very, very important 
to me because I was very concerned about going to college. I, I uh, had all kinds of notions about it being you know, very academic and so forth and so on. And uh, this first class that I went to, I, I was late. I couldn't find the classroom. I was late. And I got in there, and uh, everyone was sitting down in chairs, and there was one guy who was uh, older than us, but not a whole lot older, but, but maybe four or five years older. And uh, he was sitting in a chair, leaned up against the wall in front of the, the other people. And so the way he was dressed, I thought, well, that's a janitor, and thank <laughs> God the instructor hadn't shown up yet. He won't know I was late. <laughs> so I went and got in the, the back of the room there. And uh, the reason I thought this guy was a janitor was he had on two pairs of pants. And you could tell that because the other pair was so ripped up that you could see the, the other layer. And the outer layer was just covered in paint, just all kinds of right. bright colors and so forth, smudges, and particularly around the pockets, there were a whole lot of smudges and so forth. The guy uh, had on uh, uh, some kind of rough work shirt, which also had paint on it in various places. He had a mustache. The mustache had paint in it, little paint speckles in it. And uh, after I'd been in there for about 10 minutes, people would ask him questions, and he would say, I have the slightest idea. You know, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know at all. And I, but I realized this is the instructor. <laughs> and, and this rush of relief went over. You know, I thought, thank God I'm home. I'm home. I finally found a situation that I can, can relate to. And uh, the, the whole experience of those four years was just wonderful for me. I'd say it's probably the best time in my life. Um, the people that I associated with were all in art. And... Uh, I lived one year in the dorm, and the rest of the time you lived out wherever you wanted to. And Richmond at that time uh, had a lot of old carriage houses. The uh, college was located right in the residential section. You would hardly even know if the college was there, really, except for the administration building. And uh, classes were taught in old uh, buildings that were, you know, early 1900s or earlier. And a lot of the students, you could get those carriage houses very cheap. They were off the alleyways. And so a lot of students had their own studios by the time they were, you know, juniors or, or something. A lot of people lived in those. And uh, so it was just a very poetic time. Sure. You know? And uh, I did also uh, take commercial courses because they were offered. So I took some. But I knew after the first year that I was going to be a painter, that I was not going to be a commercial designer. But I did wind up working as a commercial designer at one right, point right. in my life. But, uh, yeah, that was my growing up experiences related to, to art. Well, and, and so did you, in terms of those classes, then, I mean, were they pretty much similar in terms of like a basic design course or drawing one course? Was it... Really well, the basic loose. design was taught like painting class, except okay. we used uh, water-based stuff. There weren't acrylic paints in those days. So it was gouache and tempera and, right. and, uh, and charcoal and crayons and, and all sorts of things. And essentially, he taught us uh, 
Well, he really introduced me to, to what I guess I built all my art making on. And he talked about composition. I remember the first thing he did in the classroom, we had these big pads that everyone got. You know, you had a little art kit that sure. you bought. Uh, he had us open those up to page one. <laughs> so, so then he had us take whatever we wanted to out of our tackle box of supplies that we've been required to buy, choose whatever you wanted, and draw five things on, on the first page. So I don't even remember what I drew. I, I think I drew an ice cream cone and I don't remember what the other four were. <laughs> and uh, one kid in there who was older than us had obviously studied art. So this kid made a composition out of the page, you know, and so we all put our stuff up. And uh, so he said, this is what I'm talking about. He went over to that kid's work, you know. And uh, he went on to talk about, you know, how it functioned and so forth and I, did, I just didn't get it, you know. I mean, it's all it was just over my head. It was over the head of everybody, except for the kid that had done it, you know. And uh, so as time went on, he talked more and more about uh, the page as being a place for illusional space, but also for flat space. And there were two different ways of experiencing that. And I, I remember another thing that he, that he taught us was uh, that before you began a work of art, you already had a configuration, a shape, the format shape. And he would have us draw the page, come in about a quarter of an inch from the physical edge of the page, and draw four lines that parallel the edge of the page so that we clearly had that in our head, that we were starting out with a rectangle already. And so we were taught to subdivide that rectangle. Everything you did inside of it was a subdivision of it and should refer back to it in some way. Well, all that didn't take on me right away, and I was actually kind of confused about a lot of what he was talking about. And he talked about push and pull. Hans Hoffman. He had studied with Hans Hoffman. And uh, in fact, the very summer before he was teaching, he had been at Provincetown studying with Hoffman. And uh, he, he took me off to the side and he said, look, I've got this book you should read. It's just a little short kind of thing, you know. And uh, uh, So it was a book that uh, Hoffman had, had written. It's called Search for the Real, I think. And so it's, it's, you know, Hoffman talking about push and pull and how he saw that in the ocean and motion of the ocean and so forth. It actually got me more confused than I was before even trying to read the book. And uh, so about that time, Christmas vacation came up. Hope I'm not going on too long with this stuff. <laughs> but Christmas vacation came up and uh, I went to a movie. And it was a very small, it was in the hometown, a very small movie theater. Hardly anybody was there. And it was some movie that was, a, I don't know, had a biblical uh, setting to it. Lots of architecture, temples and so forth. And somehow sitting in that dark room, looking at that illuminated screen and having that architecture sort of 
echoing the shape of the screen, I began to see for the first time what happened when things moved in relation to how it affected that rectangle. And everything he had talked about then, just in one moment, just clicked. I understood exactly what that was about. I, I remember sitting there, not even knowing what the content of the movie was from there out. I just was looking at the relationships of how things moved in the, the uh, frame of the, the screen. Uh, so that was a very, very important experience for me. I mean, it, it changed my entire way of seeing the world and uh, introduced me to what visual vocabulary was about, at least relative to painting. Well, and so how did you wind up transitioning then to, did you have to study it further at that time? Did they have, you know, like a master's degree that you... Uh, well, in the four-year program, you would have taken uh, about four drawing courses, uh, four or five, and then you would have taken that many painting courses. And they, they weren't really called painting courses necessarily, but they amounted to that. And then some design courses, too. The idea that uh, uh, the, the director of the program, his name was Hilton, the idea that Hilton had was that you would take your fine art experiences and apply them to commercial uh, advertising. And so that's what we, we tried to do and, and succeeded in doing. We did very uh, advanced kind of stuff. It looked like nothing that was going on in commercial art at that time. Uh, it was very much ahead a of, a, of a time. And some of the people that I was in school with, they went on to be designers. I mean, that's what they chose to do rather than being fine arts and were very successful in their, their field. Uh, I, I just can, I went through those courses. I actually enjoyed those courses. I enjoyed uh, the, the problem solving involved in it and the technical limitations you have. And uh, I still though, wanted to be a painter, and when I graduated, I spent a year, again, very poetically, <laughs> trying to be a painter and working odd jobs. I remained there in Richmond, and I, I got a little studio in an unheated garage, you know, very, very poetic stuff, <laughs> and uh, painted there and so forth. And uh, I just couldn't make it, you know. It was very embarrassing. I, I wound up having to borrow money from my parents to, to get by. And so I had uh, friends, and one of the friends said uh, he was applying to graduate school. You know, well, I thought about maybe applying to a graduate school, but he was applying to school in California. And I thought, God, that sounds terrific. That's 3,000 miles away. You know, that's great. Right. The idea of going <laughs> that far. And... Uh, so I applied to the same uh, schools that he applied to, San Francisco Art Institute and the uh, California College of Arts, um, and got into both. I was accepted into both. He applied to both and got into neither one, but uh, decided that he would go out there anyway. And so he went on a couple of months before I did. And uh, I had an assistantship at, uh, at California College of Arts, and I didn't at San Francisco Art Institute. So in talking to both 
both schools when I got out there, I, I decided since I had no money <laughs> that I would take the one that offered the, the assistantship. So uh, that's what I did. It was a, a two-year program as I went through it, and uh, a highly academic program uh, with seminars and very serious uh, papers to be written. Uh, I remember one one paper in a philosophy seminar. It took me an entire semester to write it. It was uh, around around fifty some pages, and uh, it was really the beginning for me of academics, because I'd never been challenged really before, and uh, I did have a very good language background, and. Uh, I never really thought about how those rules apply to anything other than just being rules. But when I started trying to write and had real content to talk about that I was really trying to present and uh, had to make argument for it, I realized what all those language rules are about, how you really can create inflections and how you can slant meanings and how you can set things up and so forth. And uh, that came relatively easily for me. The research that was involved in writing the paper was pretty difficult. Um, but the graduate school, I think that's what it did for me. It, it uh, introduced me to academics and critical thinking and analytical thinking. And the, the uh, seminar critiques demanded that also. So that reinforced the, what was going on in the seminars. Well, and so, you know, aside from just all the, the research and academic side of it, um, and you talked a little bit about Hans Hoffman, and obviously I, I would imagine there's some kind of lineage there, but were, I don't know, what were, you, what were you looking at at the time that you were interested in? Well, in, in the undergraduate uh, days, of course, abstract expressionism was, was it. You know, I was in undergraduate school, uh, 58 through 62, and since most of the uh, instructors that we had 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 experience with the New York school, they either lived in New York a while or had studied there, or, uh, or were just intensely influenced by what was going on in New York at that time. And uh, so a lot of what they presented was uh, abstract expressionism. And teaching in those days was, I think, different than what teaching is in most schools now. It was, it was not very academic. As I said, I really didn't experience academics until uh, graduate school in any serious way. Um, it was more like the, the guy that, or, or the woman that was teaching you, they were an artist, and, and you were privileged to even be there to talk to this person. Right. You know, here was someone that had made a commitment to making art as an adult, you know, for an adult activity. And they were teaching because they needed money. That's why they taught. They weren't in art education. They were just trying to, to get by in the world. And uh, I think that had a huge influence on me. Uh, 
just seeing their lifestyle because the, the, the instructor's not being too much older. Most of, some of them were, but most of them weren't too much older than the, the students. There was quite a bit of interaction outside of the classroom between faculty and students. And so you, in some cases, would even get to see where they lived you know, and how they lived. And uh, they were very bohemian. You know, they, mm -hmm. they uh, uh, lived like all the cliche movies about the <laughs> abstract expression. It's true. That's where they <laughs> like people live. Uh, so I guess by the time that I was in grad school, uh, in the the, large, the professional art world, uh, as known through the galleries and through the magazines, um, things had really changed. The only magazine around at that time that anybody read was uh, Art News, which is kind of a minor magazine now. But that was it. That was the only magazine. And uh, so following what was going on in Art News around 62, uh, pop art was, was surfacing. And that was the exact opposite of what abstract expressionism right. was about in content and, and attitude about how it was made. And uh, so a lot of the articles were about that, arguing back and forth. And there was a great deal of resistance from the art world to pop art in, in the beginning because it, I guess, was somewhat of a threat to the establishment of the what uh, the galleries were showing and, and what the museums had at that point. And I was, uh, I was not very influenced by pop art. Uh, I really wasn't interested in making art about the culture that I lived in. And uh, to me, it was interesting enough to just live in it. You know, I didn't want right. to take it into a studio and try to, you know, regurgitated in some kind of visual form. So I never was really involved in, in any of that. And um, at that point, I really wasn't even thinking about showing work. Um, I was just, just thinking about making it. And that was enough for me. That was enough of a payoff. And I had not even thought about how I was going to live as an adult, how I was going to have money and so forth. And uh, when I got out of grad school, I lived very, very poorly in grad school. Uh, I never bought a single magazine. I couldn't. So I would just go to the magazine stands and read until the people looked like they were really irritated <laughs> with me. And then I'd go to another one. Thankfully, in Berkeley, there were a whole bunch of uh, magazine stores and bookstores. But uh, when I got out, I thought, well, gosh, you know, with this degree, I should be able to teach. And so I applied for jobs. And, of course, I applied, I think, in July or something. You know, mm -hmm. Again, just totally naive. Every job was filled. And so I wound up uh, working for a department store advertising department. And uh, I did that for a while and really didn't like it because it wasn't a challenging kind of job at all, not, not in the least bit. And uh, I had, had also done that too in the interim between uh, undergrad and grad school. I did work for about 
three months as a graphic designer. And uh, so I was really getting fed up with it. I'd been doing it about uh, six or seven months. And I thought, uh, I'm going back to California, you know. And uh, I was in Richmond again at mm -hmm. that time. I'm going back to California. And uh, so I was really looking into that and making plans to go back there. And uh, I got this phone call. And uh, I, in the meantime, I had applied for a lot of teaching jobs. I'd even gone to an art conferencing in New York and so forth to try to line a job up. And I would almost get a job, but not quite. <laughs> you know? I know the feeling. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I get this phone call. And it's from Hilton, the guy that ran the department when I was undergraduate there. And he said, uh, I just realized you're in town. And I said, yeah, I've been here for almost a year now. And uh, he said, well, we've got an opening over here. Uh, do you want to teach? And I said, yeah, I'd like to teach, you know. I had never even thought about applying to the school I went to school at. And I thought right. that was too inbred. You know? Right. Uh, he said, well... Uh, Great. He said, okay, come by and talk to me. You've got the position. So after all <laughs> that stuff I'd gone through and money spent going to New York and all, uh, i just get it from somebody calling me up and saying. And it was only a year position. It was, right. it was supposed to end in a year. But it worked out that it went into a six-year position. And uh, during that time, I, in interacting with other faculty, uh, I began to kind of change my notion about uh, art just being something in the studio and really thinking about, you know, taking on a, a larger challenge of actually showing the work and showing it in, in some meaningful context. Um, I mean, I'd shown in libraries you know, and things like that, but actually showing in a, in a real way. And so, uh, the, to not to go on and on with that, but uh, uh, I did pursue it, but didn't didn't get too too far with it. You know, I I, I was showing uh, uh, still in kind of local things, and so um, I left that teaching position. And uh, again, was looking for, for some place to come. And uh, I did have cross friends, friends that uh, were teaching at ISU. And uh, so through them, I found that there was a position available. And uh, so I had also, uh, one of them had come to Richmond and visiting friends and had come by my studio and we'd had a long afternoon's talk there. Harold Greger was the, the person. And so uh, I applied to ISU and uh, went through the whole interview process, the whole legitimate sort of hiring process as opposed to the other job, and uh, was hired. And so after I got out here, uh, the faculty, several of us in the pain department, uh, were in group shows. And uh, we were all trying to, to show, you know, a larger, larger uh, scope than just local. 
And so banding together kind of helped for that. And we had a show in L.A. and uh, uh, then we had a show in uh, Minneapolis. And the guy uh, ran a gallery there, but he had lots of New York connections. And uh, his gallery was essentially a car dealership showroom. It was a huge place, just enormous. And uh, so we were, I think there were five of us in the group show, but we were all, it was like having a one-person show. It was that much room right. to put stuff up. And so he, he was really uh, kind of taken with my work, and uh, he said, I'm going to show it you know, to, uh, to Nancy Hoffman in, in New York. I know Nancy, I'm sure it'll work. So he did, and uh, she was interested, and so I uh, went to New York, talked to her, showed her work. Didn't work out that, that I had a show there, but that was sort of my first inroads to, to New York. And uh, she, uh, in our conversation, uh, she said, uh, I it's really not going to work out for me to show you work. I'm really, really enthusiastic about your work and all, and it needs to get shown. And she said, I'm going to suggest you go over and talk to Ivan Clark, Boyd O.K. Harris. So uh, I thought, well, God, I'm only here a day or two, you know, I haven't got to work this out. <laughs> and so then I found out that, that Ivan Clark uh, just, uh, just saw people. You know, he just kind of did that as part of being a gallery right. guy. And so you just went over there and stood in line. And so I, I mean, it's kind of odd, but that's the way he worked. And uh, so I went over there with my slides. <laughs> and uh, there were a lot of people ahead of me in the line. And uh, I think this was over some kind of break, you know, academic break. So there were a lot of probably students and faculty and so forth in that line. And as you got close enough to hear what, what he was saying, uh, he was a very candid man, is a very candid man. And uh, some people, he would, they would put their slides down and he'd say, you got nothing. This is nothing. You know, go back. Go back in the studio. Come up with something. This is nothing. And so people would be walking out past, you know, <laughs> one or two with tears, you know, kind of coming down and uh, so I thought, oh boy, what is this going to be, you know? And so uh, there's a woman ahead of me, a, a sculptor, and he's looking at her stuff. And it's really good. It was really good stuff. I can't remember who she was. But I was impressed by it, too. I was close enough to look over it. And uh, so when I sat down, he I, he said, put your stuff up. So I get my slides, and he had a little viewing table. And uh, he slaps them onto the viewing table. And... Uh, he just kind of abstractly says, there's just too much good art in the world. There's just too much terrific stuff out there. So I'm wondering, is he talking about me? Is he talking right. about her work, you know? Or what is he talking about here? And, and within a few minutes, I realized he's talking about my work. He really likes this stuff. So uh, he said, uh, I, I can give you two things. I can give you one person show. But he said, that's going to be like maybe a year and a half from but he said, I have a large group show coming up uh, in the summer. And he said, I could get you into to that show. It's a, you know, he has a huge gallery. It's like, like three galleries in one. 
So he said, you know, you'd have an opportunity to show a lot of work. And uh, so I said, well, okay, I'll take that, you know, rather than a one-person show. And uh, he said, okay, well, where's the work? And I said, it's, it's about, uh, about a thousand miles from me. Right, right. <laughs> and he said, oh, God. He said, you don't have a place here in New York? And I said, no, I don't have a place. He said, oh, God. He said, you've got to get your work here. He said, I can't deal with you. I can't, can't do this unless you get your work here. Right. He said, do you know anybody here? And I didn't know a guy who had, had worked at... Uh, at uh, well, it wasn't RPI anymore. It was Virginia Commonwealth University. And I had taught there with him, and he had moved to New York, but just a, a, just been there about six months or something. And so I told him that I knew that guy, and Carp said, oh, I know him too. He's done some work for me. But so that guy was making a living doing simple contracting and stuff. And uh, he said he owes me a favor anyway, so you, you tell him that, tell him that, that I want him to give you an opportunity in his space to put up work. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll do that. So I went back and I knew that this guy was in such a, uh, he had moved there with his family. He was living in a place that had, didn't even have a toilet. They were using a bar down at the end of a block to, for a toilet. And I thought, I'm not gonna heap this on top of that guy. Right, you right. Know? But I'm gonna give him a year anyway, get straightened out. And so within a year, he had built a really beautiful loft there. And uh, so I contacted him again, and he said, well, I'd like to help you out, but he said, I'll tell you, really, there's a better space. I know someone has a better space, but uh, uh, you know her too. And she was a student that I had, had taught at uh, Virginia Commonwealth. He said, contact her. I'm sure she'll probably let you do it. So I did. And she let me do it. And I put all the stuff up. And took it to New York. Put it up on her walls. And uh, had Carp come over and look at it. And uh, he was you know, fantastic. We'll, we'll have you in the show. No problem, you know. And so that's, that led to the show that, that, uh, that summer coming up. So that was suddenly a big jump. Sure, me, sure. Me. And... Uh, so in, in talking to him, this would have been about 75, 76. In talking to him, uh, he was uh, saying how we needed to probably have a couple of, of one-person shows before the work. He said, your work is really so innovative that it's going to take a couple of shows to really get it you know, established and uh, to get people really talking about and uh, so you know we, we at that point I understood that probably we're going to you know we're going we're going to go forward and then the you know the, the big economic crisis hit the country about that time and it affected the arts a lot I think it affected him uh, my plans to move to New York to drop teaching and move there just did not work out and uh, so that just kind of piddled out to never going anywhere. Uh, and then I guess I did pursue, I did go to New York a few times uh, showing people work and uh, so forth, but, but it, none of it ever really worked out without me going there. I would have had to move there and all, 
all cases. You know, people who didn't want to deal with Yanashi were going to be there. But uh, I, I guess I made a, a safe decision that I'd rather teach and have the security of knowing I had a studio <laughs> to make art in right. and money to buy materials with to do it than to go and struggle there and not know what the next week was going to bring or, sure. or whatever. So um, I really stopped pursuing any kind of showing on that kind of level after that. So by the 80s, I was no longer thinking right. in those terms. And actually, I think I've always uh, been more orientated to the studio than to showing the work. I don't have any objections to showing work, but there is a lot involved in showing it. I mean, there are a lot of political things, there are a lot of uh, expenses, there's a lot of time uh, that uh, really is a subtraction from, in, to my mind anyway, a subtraction from being an artist. And uh, so the studio is still the most real place for me. Right. And I don't think I could have made art this long if the payoff wasn't in the studio, uh, because uh, there, you know, I haven't pursued any other sort of payoff. But uh, I, th I think it's just because my work has always been uh, about inward things. You know, I've never made work, as I said, pop art didn't interest me. Right. And I've never made work about sociological concerns or, or uh, political concerns or, or anything that's outside of what I would think of as just my inner reality. I guess you could call it a psychological or spiritual, whatever you want to call that, but a, a kind of inner psyche. That's the basis for making art. Right. Well, and, and so then in terms of you know, the work that's here now, and obviously this is a lot of time, I guess, to kind of think of it and kind of, you know, work through it at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are the, are the, are, is where you're at now, I guess, how does that relate to previous bodies of work? And, and you know, I, I think for myself, I'm kind of, I kind of see, you know, things repeating themselves and, you know, I, I wind up becoming interested in abstraction and move towards representation and kind of back and forth. And so, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of kind of being on this journey and, and, and in terms of being inward and thinking about it like that, I mean, you know, is that kind of that process that you kind of went through? Or, I mean, do you really kind of break it up into <clears throat> distinct bodies of work, you know? And, and you talk yeah. also about, again, working back into stuff that's very old. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, what we were talking about earlier upstairs. Uh, well, I, I've almost always worked abstractly. I did work representationally, uh, oh, up until uh, the time I got out of grad school, but it was, it was never uh, realism and a rendered kind of realism. It was schematically realistic. Uh, I was very interested in folk art, mm -hmm. and so I, I sort of assumed the folk artist kind of approach to, to drawing and so forth. And, uh, and, and they were about storytelling. That's why I did that. I wanted to tell stories visually that were fantasies. And uh, 
So I guess when I got got out of grad school, I continued to pursue it for a while, and then, uh, well, I'll, I'll tell another story, I guess, but uh, I did this group of paintings that were uh, very difficult to do. They were realistic, but they were very schematic. Uh, they were representations of, uh, of sort of... Uh, Well, I don't want to talk about what they're about, but let's just say they were, they were technically difficult to do, and they were one-step kind of things where if you messed it up, there was no correcting it. They were very lean paintings, hardly any paint involved, and they were very much about layering one thing on another. So to do them just about drove me crazy. And we formed an organization when I was uh, teaching it, Virginia Commonwealth called PIE, P-I-E, and uh, we formed it so that we could could show in Richmond. There really was nowhere to show in Richmond if you were doing large work, large-scale work, mm-hmm. and uh, several of us were. And so the Carillon, which was a bell tower kind of thing, some sort of memorial, uh, I think it was World War One or something, Anyway, they had under the bell tower a huge museum space that had at one time been filled up with war kind of things, but for whatever reasons, that had been cleared, disbanded. So it's just vacant space. And it was available to any nonprofit organization to use. So that's why we became PI. So that we could uh, be a nonprofit organization and get right. to to exhibit in there, and so we we would would uh, do that once a, a year. And um, let's see, I've kind of lost my train of thought. What was I talking about before? Well, I think we were just talking about some of the different bodies of work, and you've been talking about these very technical. Oh yeah, technical and so anyways, I yeah I was getting ready for one of those pie shows. And uh, the deadline for the show got changed and uh, moved moved up, so it was even more pressure. I was up day and night trying to teach during the day, trying to make the paintings through most of the night. And uh, I had a big stretch canvas in the, the studio. I didn't have a very large studio, and uh, it was actually in an apartment. So I had uh, uh, drop cloths. Um, that I had bought from the hardware uh, store over the floors to protect them and uh, lay a plastic under those. And in the process of mixing paint, even though his paintings were very precise and mixing paint, all I'd spill paint and so forth and then gessoing gessoing things. I'd gotten the shape of the rectangle that's gessoing onto that and all. So when all these things were finally out of the uh, studio, and I'm sitting there looking at that drop cloth, and I'm looking at those stretcher bars over there. It's about a six by six stretcher bars, or six by seven, or something. And I thought, you know, there's a show coming up that I have always entered a competitive show at the Virginia Museum, and uh, I've never gotten in a show, and I've always got my work damaged. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. So I thought, 
this year. <laughs> I'm going to do a monster painting that's going to tear up other people's work. And so I thought, I'll just take this drop cloth and I'll stretch it on those stretchers. Right. And uh, so I did that. It was just ha, 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 you know, sure. completely a joke, just, <laughs> you know. And But then once I got it stretched up, it was sitting there in the studio. I'd go ahead and look at it, because the show wasn't for several months yet. And I got interested in it. And I started doing things to it, you know, making it into a painting. And so finally I resolved it into what I thought was a really pretty good painting. But still I had this attitude, I didn't give a damn. So uh, I had always crated my stuff and all to take it to the museum. This time I got a guy who had a VW car. <laughs> we held it on top. We didn't tie it down. <laughs> and driving, I remember leaning my head and looking at it. It was bowed up probably four or five inches <laughs> off of a stretcher bar. When we got there and took it off the car, magically it went taut again. Nice. You know, if you don't care, things work, I guess. But anyway, I put it in, and and the the uh, juror for the show was, uh, oh gosh, I can't think of uh, think of his name now. He was a uh, an avid strip expressionism uh, writer and critic. I can't think of it right now. But anyway, uh, he he really responded to the painting. Uh, the painting was purchased by the museum. Uh, and I got a one-person show as a reward in, right. in the show from that. So uh, that was a turning point for me. I mean, it's sort of an amusing story, but it truly was a turning point. I never made any more representational stuff. I just worked abstractly and worked in a very process kind of way, you know. And, uh, sure. So, you know, I, I guess it was such a big jump that I could only make it by making a joke out of it. I couldn't right. have seriously made that big a change in, in my life. Well, and so afterwards then, did you then use that to kind of look at materials entirely differently? I mean, I, I mean, obviously, yeah. I, I, you know, just, just in seeing the way that the work is now and not even really knowing how long you've been working on some of mm -hmm. these pieces, I mean, then was it really then just like an investigation and a kind of seeing you know, a scrap of wood or, you know what I mean? So even just any kinds of materials that were kind of in your studio, then it's an extension of the, those pieces. Yeah, it really did. Did uh, I mean, looking at the drop cloth like that, uh, it really did change how I, I began to source materials and I, I began to uh, uh, work with masking tape for a whole lot. And um, I would use masking tape to create kind of a very loose, organic kind of grid. And then I'd work within that, that kind of grid structure. And eventually, uh, the masking tape, which was on, on a relatively small scale, uh, changed into being strips of canvas. And uh, that I would soak in materials and alter in different arbitrary kind of ways and then rip it into strips and cut it into strips and uh, build grids. And at some point it occurred to me, what is the point of gluing that grid down to a rectangle? Just put it on a wall. Yeah. And so I, I put this open grid in the studio up on the wall and uh, it worked. 
You know, I was just really ecstatic about it. And uh, so that got me into working with shaped kind of formats rather than just, you know, a traditional kind of flat edge sure. rectangle. And that evolved into things that even, even involved lumber that came out onto the floor and, and uh, propped things up on the wall. And they, they became very installational. And uh, almost one or two things were really kind of room size. And of course, they were one shot things. You just put them up. I just took materials to the site where I was showing and put, put stuff up. And um, that gradually evolved into um, something that, well, the thing we're looking at there is kind of a late uh, end of that, that kind of approach. But uh, I could talk a little bit maybe about conceptually what I was thinking about in, in doing that beyond just responding to the materials and, and so forth and the process of altering the materials. Um, as I said earlier, the way I really learned art structure was to think in terms of a format shape and then you subdivide it the format shape. And you created a tension between whatever you did inside and the original shape of the format. And I started thinking about that being a metaphor for an individual in society. And I, I really considered that the rectangle could be society, could be the, the kind of regulating body of society, the laws, the mores, and so forth. And then the individual is, is free to act, but they have to act within that. And they have to act in relation to that. And I thought, well, that, you know, why can't that be reversed? Why can't I just start with a point, point on the wall, and then build from that? You know, the hell with the outer edges. Just, just build a configuration. So I made lots of linear configurations like that. And uh, they were kind of like the pieces that are drifting across that rectangle there. They were pieces like that, some on a very large scale, like uh, 24 feet or more in, in length. And uh, I also was very intrigued with the way that that can affect the wall. And the, the piece we were looking at is not ideally put up, and we use push pins to put it up. But ideally, I would use push pins to make the initial attachment holes and then use little map pins, which just have a little tiny head on them. And then I would either use black ones, which match the tones of most materials I was putting them through, or if they didn't, I would paint them to, to match the surrounding material. So there really wasn't an issue about how they were put up. I mean, that wasn't part of the content of these things are pinned on the wall. Sure. Uh, and, and I was really intrigued how they created an aura of illusion out from them and really made the wall act as space, visually. And um, in that piece, even what finally happened was after I'd done a few years of these, you know, isolated, uh, fragmented kind of images, 
I decided, what if I brought them back to a rectangle? If I brought the rectangle back in, did I really gain anything in terms of understanding a language that could be, you know, put in evidence by going back to the rectangle? And so I began to do things like that. And they usually evolved to be things sort of drifting and merging into the rectangle, but breaking the boundary of it and the rectangle being very stable, just just sitting there almost static, and then all the animation is in the forms that are drifting past that are attached to it in some way. And so, and so you've been you've been talking about you know a particular series of work, and and we've been talking a little bit about all these different avenues of experimentation, um, and to some degree, it's just now a, a perceptual conversation tangent. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in terms of materials, um, or even just installation, or I guess larger spaces, I mean, what kind of, aside from just the, the materials that you predominantly use, did you ever have then, you know, a desire to kind of make a, I don't know, things that were outside of that realm completely? Or had you done it and it not been your thing? Well, I, I um, of course I've made a lot of oil paintings. And uh, so I was really very familiar with how to handle oil paint and um, had used it in, in everything from like little, I used to make little small paintings in undergrad school that were about a, an inch by um, three inches or something. I would find wooden blocks in the alleys and I'd bring them back home and clean the blocks up and just on and then paint on those. And um, those, at that point in my life, um, I was totally taken with Albert Ryder, Albert Pinkham Ryder. Uh, and I kind of combined like abstract expressionism, as I said, that's what all the instructors mm -hmm. were talking about. I, I took that down from a billboard scale down to a, you know, a postage stamp almost, and uh, tried to deal with a kind of pastoral imagery, imagery like horses in a pasture, a little tiny horse. A horse would only be, you know, like a 16 right, right. inch high or something, just a little tweak of a brush. And so they, they were recognizable, but they were very abstract, and they were very dark and moody. Mm -hmm. And uh, so they also involve varnishing, you know, like like uh, building up layers of, of color that way too. And so I had done that kind of stuff with oil paint as well as that, you know, direct painting with oil paint on a large, really large scale. And uh, I, I guess I just have never gone back to oil paint, although it's a beautiful material. And when I taught classes uh, in basic painting, I would do a lot of demonstration stuff. And I always looked forward to doing those, <laughs> really, really did look forward to doing that because I enjoyed how you can manipulate the oil paint. You know, you can just mix it forever, you know, and uh, uh, get all kinds of subtleties and blends and so forth out of it. That's very difficult to do for acrylic. Um, but I think that I really, 
I'm happiest when I uh, am making something that's physical for me. And if I'm applying paint, I like to do it physically. I like to think that I'm covering the surface and putting a covering over a surface. And whatever's going on with color and all, of course, is, a, is a, another optical thing. But I, I really like painting on a, a hard surface. I don't really like the balance of stretched canvas. And so usually I either work against a hard surface or I work on something that is a hard surface. And um, I don't know, I just have never um, pursued getting real sculptural, like, like nailing wood together, other than the things I refer to building a kind of installation sort of thing. But I never thought about uh, um, using concrete and you know, right, things right. like that. Sure. Well, um, yeah, and I mean, I'm just curious, just because, you know, um, a lot of people kind of start working within site-specific kind of spaces, and, you know, mm -hmm. it's, it's a little tangent here, but um, just uh, some areas of 55 that I drive past, you know, you'll see houses that, you know, have billboards kind of going up the front, you know, the front windows mm -hmm. and doors and stuff like that. And, you know, I know obviously that, you, that, that wood is, you know, certainly like a material that you've used mm -hmm. a lot. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, so that's, I guess that's kind of where I'm, where I'm thinking about it. Cause I just, I don't know, I, I can just imagine you walking through, you know, even just a place like a hardware store or past a barn or something and kind of seeing like, oh, you know, that, that could be interesting. Yeah. yeah. So that, that certainly did happen. I mean, I can talk about that later in the, another group of works. Uh, but I think that all along, even when I was a child, I used to, because I lived on, on the river, and the river there is about five miles wide, and uh, it goes out to the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, so I spent a lot of time on the shore when I was playing by myself, just walking along, picking up stuff, looking at stuff. And I, I always liked the kind of surfaces that you would see the textures and so forth and, and peeling paint and long before I ever thought about being an artist or anything like that. Right. But I, I always recognized in myself that there was something going on with the way that I related to things that wasn't going on with everybody else. You know, and, sure. and it was troubling. I mean, it wasn't a good thing. You know, it was troubling. I thought, Maybe I'm a little <laughs> not quite right or something. I think we all might be that. <laughs> <laughs> and then later on, I found out, oh, I'm an artist. That's, right. That's what it is. You know? And uh, so I, I think part of the, the, the wanting to work with materials is just based on early experience of, of responding to this, right. those things. But after, to, to go back to talking about the different series that I've worked with. After I did the strap bag, frags, uh, I, I had a lot of personal changes in my life and I uh, w once again was out with, without money. <laughs> and so so I, uh, I, I really couldn't afford a studio and I uh, lived in an apartment and actually worked off of my bed. I would work on my bed and so obviously I was working on paper and things like that. And uh, so, some time passed, a, year, a couple of years passed, and uh, 
I finally got money enough again to have a big studio and materials. And so uh, I got in there and I, I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do? Am I, I going to try to pick up with the strap frag kind of stuff and go in there? And I, I thought, I just can't do that. That slipped beyond me. You know, that's, that's kind of, it had come to kind of a resolution anyway. And uh, so I just kind of, for about a year or two, I just kind of searched, just did things and uh, really didn't do things that I wanted to show people. And uh, finally I began to get back into sort of like an ABX thing, I guess, and I began doing uh, gestural kind of paintings on a rectangle again. And the painting in the corner would be an okay. example of that. And they were kind of image-orientated. I mean, they, they kind of suggested maybe a, uh, sometimes figurative things. And this, this would be along them, too. Or, or they might suggest uh, natural things, trees or, or uh, bushes or, or, or things like that. But they never were. I mean, I never said I could represent anything like that. And so I always thought, you know, they were not representational, but they were just evocative. You know, they would evoke references without really being representational of the thing. And uh, I, I worked that way, I guess, for about, uh, oh, maybe, maybe about eight or nine years. And uh, they finally, finally kind of a, uh, ended in a, a series of very vertical formats, which were plywood with canvas stretched over top of them. Again, I want that hard surface to, to work into. And uh, I put them out from the wall. They, they were panels that had some thickness to them, and they floated out from the wall. And I began to use them in combinations, too, to make a, a assemblage of panels. And so that sort of, sort of ended that that phase of the work. And the next thing was, uh, you were talking about building materials. Uh, let's maybe take a few minutes to explain <laughs> fine. the rationale. But for a long time, I, I had thought of the world as divided into three categories. And one category was, was nature, and, uh, or the natural. The second category was synthetic, and uh, which would be like man-made sort of things, practical, pragmatic things. Uh, and the other was aesthetics, uh, artistic or poetic connection. And I, I just, you know, I was thinking, how could I ever do that in a piece of art? How could I could evoke all three of those presences and yet assemble them in some kind of meaningful relationship to one another? I just couldn't figure it out. I tried a lot of different things and they were just stupid. You know, it, would just, it just wound up being illustrational of what I was thinking about. So I kind of put it on a back burner and just did other things. And as you mentioned, being in a hardware store, uh, I was walking, no, actually, I guess it started like this. I had a, uh, a studio at that time that was in a, a, a two-car garage. 
and I had other things stored in the garage. And one of the things was a plywood table that somebody had cut the top of it, a round uh, disc kind of thing. I guess it's about four foot in diameter. And they had not used really good plywood. They hadn't used a good finished grade plywood. They'd used like a rough construction plywood. It had knot holes. In mm-hmm. And so it was laying over there, side of the wall, you know, and one day I was thinking, you know, if I drew a line between that knot hole and that knot hole and that knot hole, I'd sure make an interesting shape. And it would sit in a real interesting way within that, that circle format. And so I thought about it for a few days, and I thought, well, you know, what the hell, I'm going to do it. So I went, got a ruler, <laughs> got a yardstick, I mean, and a piece of charcoal, and it just real simply drew those lines in. And I was looking at that, and I thought, God, that's it. That's it, because in the, the plywood, you know, it has all the natural configuration of grain and knot holes and so forth that references nature. But yet it's been put in a synthetic form. It's been veneered off of a tree, layered into different layers to make a structurally strong surface. And in the case of that that plywood, it was probably for underflooring. You know, it was never intended to be seen by anybody except the carpenter putting it in. And uh, so that seemed to me to really reference the, the synthetic or the practical, pragmatic world where you know, natural forms are put in the service of, of doing something for someone, uh, solving a pragmatic problem. And then the seeing those, those knot holes, this coordinates to form a shape, brings an aesthetic kind of connection. And it actually, in my mind, sort of brought a healing kind of thing because there's a kind of disparity between the natural world and the synthetic world. And, I mean, you see that in evidence, all the talk about green and so forth now. I mean, it's always, always been a a concern. And by making the two things married together in an aesthetic image, then there is a kind of resolution to that. And so that became what what uh, fueled doing that. And I would go to the hardware stores, and I would pull out, I'd go to Menards and pull out every piece of floor <laughs> that they had. But they loved you. Oh, God, they would come and ask me, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> what, what, can we help you in some way? Do you need a cart you know, for this? And, and I would say, no, I'm looking for a special one. And they'd say... What, what do you mean? And I'd say, I, I just want a special one, the way it looks. <laughs> and they just walk off. You know? <laughs> so I, I would go and get rough plywood, the kind of, I think it is used for, for sub-flooring, and uh, pick several sheets that I thought showed promise for coordinates and so forth. And then I'd come back and do the coordinates and uh, put them in combination a lot of times. And I, I did quite a few works like that. I, I think I must have done probably close to 20 works. Some of them quite large scale, some very small. And uh, so the piece behind you would be a good right, right. reference for that, that piece up, little piece up there. Uh, 
And those are probably the most conceptual thing that I've ever done, where I really had a concept in my head and found a form to, to accommodate the concept. Because it's usually the other way around. The form comes before the concept, before I can realize what, what I'm getting at. And uh, so since then, I think I've gone back to painting. And I, I really don't have examples of stuff like that out here because I'm really not at a point where I feel they're that resolved. But uh, I'm, I'm working with, with uh, paint and trying to, in a way, go back to the thing about the, the, the configuration versus the rectangle it's in. I'm trying to construct configuration that really denies the rectangle that it's in, and um, I think I'm I think I'm on to something now, but I'm not not at a point where I really want to show those sure. things. And the other things that we looked at are, are the things that were just in the recent show. And those things, as as we were saying earlier, I was talking to you about them. Uh, some of those things have a very long history. They all were recently resolved. But some have a history that goes back years and years. And they're just things, they're, they're different than the way that I usually worked. I mean, probably from what I've described, you can see that I usually worked in a series kind of way. I would have a, a, a direction, a conceptual direction, or an intuitive direction. And to me, a series is like when you, you narrow down a problem to deal with. And then you do several paintings, and there are variations of solving that problem. And so they wind up look, looking somewhat alike. Uh, the, the works that were in the recent show, they're not like that. They're just a group of works. They're not a series. And they really are just based in strictly intuitive responses to materials, and um, in some cases, uh, objects or pieces of objects that, uh, that have a history uh, associated with them. In some cases, I'm aware of a history. In some cases, I'm not. It's sure. a film. And they're just things that I've picked up over the years that I thought, oh, well, that's interesting looking. And that's, uh, put it in my pocket and <laughs> take it home and put it in the studio. And it might be three years before I look at it again. I mean, is it, and has there been a piece that's been in progress or worked forever or um, one one of the pieces really I had worked on for probably ten years and uh, obviously not continuously but but getting it out every few years looking at it again and making alterations and changes in it mostly subtle kind of changes and um, that particular piece. Uh, again involved a, a large expanse of plywood and I did things to alter the tone and shade of it by working with tea and coffee and uh, uh, lemon juice and bleach and things of that sort and just gradually uh, altering surface and letting time pass, exposing it to sunlight, letting it sit out for a month or two and so forth, and uh, I think that's probably the longest uh, 
time that I've worked on on one of, or on any of these probably. But I, I, you know, keep work around, and some of it's in storage and very difficult to get to to see. Mm -hmm. But uh, a, a lot of it, I keep at least one or two pieces that, that are representative of it, and I get them out a lot and look at them. You know, I, I spend a lot of time looking at my work, and um, to me that's important because I want to create a unique sort of dialogue. I'm not interested in dialoguing with the art world. Um, I think at one point, probably back in the 70s, I was more interested in that. Um, because in the 70s, there was an abstraction, a kind of set of principles and assumptions that were being challenged. And... Uh, and I was interested in, in what other people were doing in relation to that. So I did a lot of looking at other people's work and a lot of reading. And uh, I'm sure that had an effect on my work. I don't think my work really ever looked very much like any of that, of what I was looking to. But uh, I guess I just took solace and, and uh, some uh, strength in, in knowing that other people had similar kinds of concerns that they were investigating. But uh, I, I really don't look at, at much in the art world anymore. I haven't right. been in a museum in, I don't know when. Right. I mean, many, many, many years. And uh, occasionally, I have lots of art magazines from the uh, 70s and the 80s and all. Uh, way too many, actually, are a problem, but I... I get those out maybe once a year and kind of look through them, you know, and uh, uh, just kind of remembering things mostly, <laughs> just refreshing my mind about. But uh, I I really don't pay any real attention to what's current in the art world. Occasionally I'll, I'll pick up a, a magazine uh, art form or something and look through it, and I, I gather there's not a whole lot of interest in painting anymore. It seems like that uh, there's a lot of interest in installation, video, and uh, reading some of the writing about art now. It, it, I can usually get a paragraph or two. I'm just so bored. I can't, I can't go any further. And that's very different because I don't know who those people are writing to. I, I can't believe they're writing to artists. Right. Uh, but maybe they are. Maybe I just don't know that kind of artist. Uh, but back in the 70s, uh, art form was written for artists. Right. And uh, I would say a good part of my education uh, is self-education. And art form had an awful lot to do with it from about, oh, I'd say the issues from about 69 68, 69, up through maybe 80, 81, 82. Um, I learned a lot from reading art form. It pointed out an awful lot of stuff to me and sent me in other directions to, to read and research also. But uh, I don't know of any art publication. Maybe there, there are some, but I don't know of any that are like that now. Um, so I, I really don't, I, I was thinking about uh, about a year or two ago, uh, 
somebody asked me to give me a t to give a talk uh, on, about my work, and mm -hmm. it, and it was to lay people. It wasn't to artists. Right. Although there were a couple of art students at Rivera, apparently, and uh, I just don't understand how how people probably pursue studying art now. It must be really baffling because there's so much out there, right? And there's such a, a history and backlog just of art in this country, not to mention art in all the other countries, um, plus the real quote-unquote art history, the weight of all of that, um, I don't know. I don't, I don't see how you position yourself. It was very simple for me. Uh, as an undergrad, there were only two choices. You, were, you hated abstract expressionism. It was just a bunch of crap, and you wanted to draw it as realistically as you possibly could. Right. Or you hated realism. It was a bunch of crap. And you wanted to be an abstract painter. It's real simple. Right. right. <laughs> well, and I think, too, I mean, it's interesting to hear you talk about people that write about work. Um, you know, somebody that, like myself and, and a lot of other people that, that, you know, are still pursuing our New York experience <laughs> or, you know, that, that big kind of show. Um, you know, it's certainly difficult to meet people that support artists and you know what I mean like like somewhere where I, I drop my work off where I really feel like these people are interested in, in the same kinds of things that I'm interested in mm -hmm. and I think that you know even tangentially things that we've talked about in terms of you know students you know I think that there's there's something that you can't really explain or I guess really work out unless you've taken the time you know, to, to work through something, mm -hmm. you know, the way that, that artists do. And, and I think, although, you know, I think there's certainly like a lot of validity to, to writing and criticism and those kinds of things. I think that for me, it, it, I don't know, at times I feel like it can be something that kind of pulls me away from that process. Yeah. And I, I yeah. think also in terms of the way that you're talking about being reflective about it, you know, I, I just had this experience last night where I was just, <laughs> going through paintings on my website and just kind of taking taking back. I mean, I, you know, you look at these things when you're making them in this space. They kind of really pull away from them. You don't always get that that. And so, I mean, in terms of reflecting on that, you know, I'm just going through all these paintings and just recognizing that this, you know, this weird space that I was hovering in, you know, before finding some kind of work. Um, you know, it was such an important time because I'm seeing all of these little subtle things, these subtle evolutions kind of going through the work, mm -hmm. you know, going from something that's just very much about representation to start really kind of playing and interacting with all these shapes and the things that I'm representing within this, this space. And mm -hmm. I get really interested in the, the negative space and, and the way that these things started to suge suggest all these overlappings and even just kind of going back, uh, you know, to some, you were talking about Hans Hoffman, you know, now relative to the podcast and, you know, over an hour ago. Mm -hmm. But I mean, those are still things that I think and kind of work through. But um, I think it's really important to be in that, you know, and it, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard to explain, I guess, or justify it or, or, I don't know, look at it in that way when, when somebody's looking at it just as a, you know, trying to come up with this 30-second explanation of what this is yeah, and how it's supposed yeah. to relate to something. I mean, and, and it, 
I guess in that sense, um, you know, we kind of want a lot from people. Yeah, it's it's almost ridiculous what we want because you know you put up a piece of art that you've spent years and years and years to get to a point that you could make that piece of art, and somebody comes by and they look at it for maybe a minute and a half, right? And that's it. <laughs> you know, so sure. I mean, they couldn't possibly even begin to deal with what what you've dealt with in, in making a piece of work. You know, and maybe in the, the best of circumstances, something is transferred, or something is awakened, probably in the viewer that's meaningful to them, significant to them. You hope, you hope maybe that could happen. But the art world is is uh, full of of ignorance. I mean, and and it's because of uh, the educational system that we have. We don't teach visual language, right? So people have no idea how to look at something, and of course they don't know, you know, the history of, of art concepts. Uh, so, I mean, what would they do? I mean, you know, they just come to it, and, and there it is, and, and they assume the most literal kind of thing of it. Like, you know, people would say, uh, you know, it's just a bunch of splashes of paint and scratches and whatever the hell I can do that. My kid can do that. My dog can do that, you know. Well, if you walked into a classroom of, say, uh, you know, higher math, and there were math equations up on the board, well, a person probably wouldn't say, oh, hell, I can make an equal sign, so I can do a four. <laughs> a six-pack kid can do that. You know, that's just shit. You know? Yeah, I, I always find that I've never met somebody that just does it. Mm-hmm. You know, even even somebody that I'm that I'm work that I'm trying to work with mm-hmm. that doesn't really have any interest in getting anything out of you know a concept. You know, mm-hmm. even it's just something like as recently as uh, you know trying to depict a landscape with real space and atmospheric perspective. Mm-hmm. You know, I, th- I think it gets chalked up to that idea of like, oh, I could do that, but they never they never do. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing that's all, that always kind of struck me is that you know, well, you should be out doing this because. Apparently, you could be, you know, you could be, you could be really, um, really scoring here. But is, is, so, you know, in terms of trying to maintain that studio practice, I mean, obviously, um, money, finances, those, those are kinds of things that are, that are kind of playing in it. And I guess I'm going to try to bottle a couple of these things up then. So, I mean, was there ever anything that you had been working on or something that was just a disaster that made you say, <laughs> why the hell don't I just work on cars? <laughs> Oh yeah, I've had I've had uh, tremendous uh, uh, discouragement in, in, in the studio, uh, but it's kind of a up and down kind of thing, you know. I mean, you you can't expect every time you go in the studio for something to really happen, and uh, I used to when I had a studio away from home. I would go every day, uh, even even the days that I worked, I would go at night. And I would just go there. It was a place to go and, and a place where I could make something if the occasion arose, you know. But I remember days that I went down there and just slept. You know, yeah. I'd look at work for a while and get sleepy and just lay down on the floor and sleep. Uh, so I, I, I think that... that 
after you've done it a long time, you realize that if you do have a day in the studio where nothing works and nothing connects and you just feel like, my God, why am I even doing right. this, you know? You know that, that that's one day and, and there's another day coming where it'll be quite, quite different sure. than that. But it, I think it, it is very difficult to be an artist in this society. And, um, you know, in my case, I taught. And, and in your case, you're teaching. So that kind of makes you legitimate. You know, I mean, that's, that's interacting with uh, society in a, in a recognized way to be legitimate. But I, I remember having one studio downtown in, in Bloomington and, you know, I'd get up early in the morning, get my coffee, and I'd be in the studio at this seven. And it happened to have big windows, and I could look down on all the people that were going to work. And, you know, I would think, you know, here I am, I'm in my 40s, you know, I'm an adult, and I'm up here just making marks and <laughs> right, right. These people are really going to jobs where they're doing <laughs> things, you know, that really interact with other people's lives and so forth. And, and you just, you know, you just, it's very difficult sometimes, I think, to take yourself really seriously. And, right. and because most of society is not going to take you seriously at all. Look how artists are always portrayed in the movies, they're always a joke. You know, right, right. Always, or an insane person, one of the two. Just give them a beret. <laughs> <laughs> um, one real funny story that one, one instructor told me that I think kind of, kind of sums up part of what the art world is like. Uh, he was teaching painting, and he had this uh, society woman uh, start taking a night class. It was an adult uh, night class. And so... Uh, she took it for one semester. She started painting with him. And he said uh, she was not, not very good at it, you know, but he did work along with her. And about four years later, he entered a competitive show and was rejected from the show. And so he was looking at the show, a list of the jurors, and she's one of the jurors. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, that just seemed to sum up a lot of stuff for me. Well, and so I, I guess in that sense, I mean, do you just find that that journey, I guess, is all the thing that makes it worth it for you? I mean, what? Yeah, I think that, that the, uh, the I guess it's kind of a narcissistic thing, but but uh, I I think just being able to explore the world in terms of myself uh is, is really important to me. And if that could be meaningful to someone else, that's wonderful too. I mean, if what the result of my doing that can be shared in some way, great. But the real payoff for me is, is a, what I realize and what I discover in the process of, sure. of doing that. Uh, I've found that all kinds of things about myself uh, just in the process of being an artist, making art that I would never, ever found out any other way, I'm sure. Right. Probably not even going to a psychologist would have, would have provoked it, you know. Well, and so, you know, we, we've kind of talked a, a little bit about this in terms of, you know, what people are, would be studying and all that now. I mean, 
if if uh, if you have a a bright young kid that you're somehow introduced through a, a, a neighbor or something like that. Mm-hmm. Ron used to teach art, you know. You know mm-hmm. Mikey wants to right. study yeah. art, you know. Yeah. What do you what do you tell? Would you encourage somebody in that situation, or I mean, is it case well, by case? Well, actually, I've had that happen. And, uh, what what I always tell them is, is you know. Art really isn't a, a profession that you learn. You know, it, it really is a state of mind. And there are people who are artists, and there are people who are not artists. And if you are an artist, then, you know, going to school is real helpful because, uh, you know, you learn things that can help you be a better artist, a more developed artist, more sophisticated. But I'm not even sure you would really have to go to school. You probably wouldn't make very sophisticated stuff, but you would still make stuff. And there are just some people that are on a journey, you know, that that uh, um, need to to have discovery in their in their world and their their life. And I think those people are artists. And uh, so, if someone was like that, I would 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 recommend that they go. Now, I realize some. Of the, some people can't identify that in themselves mm-hmm. until they do go to school. And I, I certainly in teaching saw people that were thought they were an artist and found that they weren't. I've certainly mm-hmm. seen that happen to people and they just dropped out. And I've seen other people who had no idea that they were an artist and found that they were in the course of it. I used to teach a class, that, uh, it was a summer class, and uh, it was all non-art people. And uh, one guy, I don't even know what he was in, but it was he had never taken an art class, but he liked to draw. And so in the course of, it was basic drawing, so in the course of that, uh, we, we studied perspective and proportion methods and so forth. Of course, it was pretty much drawing from observation. And so I started talking about how you could distort, if you understood the principle of, of linear perspective, vanishing point, and so forth, uh, how you could distort it and use it to express things, to exaggerate things or diminish things or, or whatever, and how you could, could make the, the different layers of space take on meaning relative to the subject matter you were drawing. And that guy, I've never seen anything like that. That just lit something in him and we were just drawing the hallway and things like (laughs) that you know but that guy class would end and the summer classes go from you know early in the morning to mid-afternoon I would go there sometimes to the office you know at 11 at night the guy's still over there drawing on this situation he said he never realized that that's what art could be that it was actually about expressing something he thought it was just making pictures of things I always thought that was, I always kind of kept that as one of, one real accomplishment as a teacher. I think, I don't know what the guy did. I, he probably maybe never drew again after the class. But at least for that time, that really opened something up for him. And maybe it changed how he looked at art. Maybe he's, maybe he's a, an audience for art at this point. And I know that we talked a little bit about, you know, contemporaries or what you pay attention to and kind of have a, an answer for that but um, 
you know, in terms of that, I mean, is there any, I don't know, is there anything that you would describe as being visual or an experience that might not even be related to art that you could kind of use to kind of think about it in the same way? Um, just because, you know, like, I mean, I don't know, I'm, I'll be taking a trip to Las Vegas, actually, by the time after this podcast comes out, I'll have been to Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, even something as silly where, where I'm being brought in, apparently, hopefully, this might not be, this will be a letdown if it doesn't happen, but I'm supposed to jump 108 floors off of a building. Oh, gosh. Tethered to something, and there's something about oh, it. Oh, luckily, tethered. <laughs> yeah, of course. <laughs> of course, I have to explain that, you know, there's safety involved, but um, I, I, for me, I kind of really like the idea that this would be the safest environment to experience something where I feel like I might die. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's some potential in that. Um, and maybe that's not directly related to something visual, but, you know, since, since, I, since maybe you don't have that experience where you can say, oh, I went to such and such a show and smashing and this person mm-hmm. is so fabulous. I mean, is there any kind of little... I guess, moment in, in life in the last, I don't know, X amount of years that you can kind of think about that maybe fulfills that kind of role or, you know, experiencing something? Well, I, I don't know, being uh, out here, you know, but it's all uh, really on, on corporate kind of farming, or at least I think with it, it's on such a huge scale. Uh, this time of year, when all the crops are cut down and the fields are, you can see, just the fact that you can see, sometimes vistas far enough that you see the curvature of the earth. There's just nothing there. It's this land that goes. Um, it makes the sky real important. You know, and it's a little bit like in Texas. If you drive through Texas, the parts of Texas where the, the sky just becomes paramount because there's nothing else, you know, to look at. Uh, I think some of the spatial things there, uh, my wife uh, has a, a horse that is a, a nearby farm, barn, and we go out there every day. So... A lot of times I just go out there and, and stand around and look, you know, at the sky and the field while she's feeding the horse. Uh, but something about the wraparound of the sky out here that, that uh, really fascinates me. Um, it's, I, maybe it has to do with peripheral vision, you know, with the, the space extending into your peripheral vision. And, and not not being interrupted by objects or anything like that. Most of the time when you're looking at something, you're looking at an object of focus in front of you. And the peripheral vision is nothing but a fill-in context that orientates you a little bit. But here, since there's really nothing you're looking at, I think, except sky, and it's sky all the way back, it makes peripheral vision function in a different way. I wish there was some way I could get that into a painted right. situation. I, I, you know, I've, I've tried a lot of things. Just what I know about perspective and narrow perspective and so forth. Just, just fooling around with little things. But 
I wouldn't want to do it illustrationally, but if it could be done abstractly, that would be a fantastic thing to work with. And the other thing that I notice all the time is billboards, and uh, especially billboards that are on their last legs. You know, yeah, that's something, that I, that's something that I wind up taking photographs when I drive, and you know. Yeah, I thought about doing that once, just taking the summer off and going along and taking photographs of all the sort of disintegrating billboards. Because some of those things are just fantastic if you think of it as a painted sculptural situation. They're just just amazing. Sure. And they're totally unintentional. Right. Right. You know, it has nothing to do with anything a human did. And it's kind of funny then, because I, I mean, that was kind of the one of the, one of the reasons, I guess, behind my my own interest in kind of working with with that surface, um, but minus so much more of a synthetic mm-hmm. built, you know what I mean, built up kind of weathered surface. But mm-hmm. um, um, yeah, that would make again another good coffee table book. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. But there, there is an ordering system outside of, of, of human rationale that is really interesting and more complex than anything a human rationale can, can invent and come up with. And I think that's why I'm drawn to process, because uh, process, you, you really can't control what's going to happen. And, it, and it's like nature in that, that way. I mean, you are sort of imitating nature, acting as nature. And... Uh, I think that's what I really find most interesting about making work is when I can employ that kind of, you know, what you call it an accident or whatever, but if I can bring that kind of complexity into the work and not do it rationally, but have it come in intuitively and and, uh, perhaps at the same time take on some kind of metaphor, that's that's the best it gets for me. They're sure, making sure. art. That's that's right. So, in answer to your question, yeah, I do notice things in my environment that are are uh, have nothing to do with art or the intention of art, but are are very interesting to me as art, and and might be better than a lot of the things that might yeah. be taken for. So, yeah. Um, and so you know you have these these pieces that you're you talked about, kind of growing maybe more towards completion. Is there uh, anything in the in the the future horizon, in, in which case we might might see some of these these pieces. Uh, possibly, we're, possibly. We're about it at, at the end is in terms of questions. Yeah. That's why I usually like to hope yeah. that we've got something to kind of look at. But yeah, uh, well, there. Yeah, I, I think I'd like to have a show of these once I go resolve. I don't know where I would show them, but. Uh, uh, I think they'll make a, a nice uh, series of sure. paintings. That, uh, so something we'll have to look forward to then. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they'll have a physical presence as well as a painted presence, that's, sure. that's for sure. And I guess just because this is the last thing then, I mean, is there any, this is going to be hokey, um, <laughs> is, is there any kind of advice that you would give to somebody that, you know, is you know 20-something years old that, you know, maybe graduated and they're, I don't know. Starting, starting, starting to work. I don't know. I mean, you mean until I was just gotten out of art school? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean. Um, well, I, I. 
when I was teaching, what I always told people is that there's a huge shock when you leave a support system of a school because you're in school, you have the guarantee of people critiquing your work, showing interest in your work, whether it's real or not, they're showing interest in your work. Uh, you've got other people around you seriously doing what you're doing, and it all kind of makes sense. And when you step out of it and go into the everyday world, it's, it's a big step, it's a big transition. So I think the most important thing is to, as soon as you can possibly afford it, get a studio that is set aside just for making art. And even if you have to live in it, even if economics is such, the only way you do is combine it. But you need a place where you can make art, and that will help to carry some of that support system and reality over for you. And the other thing, obviously, long-term, is you have to figure out how do you get money and still have time enough to reflect and think about art and money enough to afford the space to make it in and the materials to make it with. Sure. And that's that can be quite a problem. Uh, I think if you teach, you're lucky. That's a pretty, pretty good solution because you're in the context of what you do anyway and want to do. Uh, not that it doesn't have a lot of headaches <laughs> with it, but uh, it's it's a pretty good solution, and it gives you time. It doesn't give you much money, you know. And the the old cliche when you decide to be an artist, you you take a vow of poverty. I think it's really a truism. You know, very few people. There are some people that make a lot of money with art, uh, but there are very very few people right. that do that. And uh, that's a real consideration because it, it's kind of glamorous when you're in your 20s and, oh, I, don't, I just have this one pair of pants. It's all I know, man. <laughs> I don't care. You know, that's all I need. It's different when you're 40. Right. You know, and you want to know a pair of pants. <laughs> <laughs> so you really have to, you, you have to adjust as time goes on because sure. you'll have a different idea of how you want to be in the world. And a lot of times it involves money. Right. right. And there's no other way. I guess the best solution is be to be born into money, inherit money, that would be great. <laughs> or maybe marry into money, that would be another possibility. <laughs> all all sound strategies. Mm-hmm. Um, well that that brings me anyways to a conclusion of, of questions that I have for you. So it's uh, been really <laughs> enjoyable listening to uh, these stories, and I, I appreciate it. Yeah, well, this time. is fun. I really enjoy doing it. Well, a special thanks again to Ron Jackson for joining us at StudioBreak.com. Our intro music today was Sexton Ming's Hot Rod Man. Again, you can find that on Free Music Archive along with Learning Music's Wonder that will be taking us out today. Remember, too, if you're new to Studio Break, you can always go to studiobreak.com, check out old episodes. We've got 13 official ones, including a special. Of course, if you're on Facebook, you can become a fan of Studio Break. That's all we've got for you today. We'll talk to you soon. Happy holidays, folks.
Thank you. 